Previously on the British Broadcasting Century, amazingly, we've been in January 1923 for quite a few episodes. On episode 40... Pandemonium reigned. Telephones never stopped ringing. Typewriters never stopped clicking. On episode 41, Isabel Shields became the first female BBC employee. So she came in as his secretary and disorganised him. And then new microphones, no more 2LO calling. This is 2LO calling. Now, London calling. London calling. This is London calling. Episode 43 had the first OB. Well, the lucky people were able to um, put a microphone into the opera, into the Scotland Garden. And all at once, one put on a pair of headphones and was aware that something miraculous was happening. Arthur Burroughs visited 2ZY Manchester and 5IT Birmingham, as did we. We also had reviews of books. We had weekly talks about gardening. The kind of things that other people adopted, if I may say so, after us. Episode 47, Peter Eckersley closed down 2MT Riddle. All of this in January 1923. But now we enter February of the BBC's first year and find there's still no chief engineer, or any engineer for that matter. This time, Peter Eckersley tells the tale of how he joined Auntie Beeb, the broadcasting company he had been mocking every Tuesday night on the wireless. We'll hear from Marconi historian Tim Wonder and Peter Eckersley himself, of course. Another special guest, author and academic, Professor David Hendy, the man behind the book, The BBC, A People's History. Join us for the pioneer days of this British broadcasting century. London hello, hello, welcome to episode 49, nearly at our half-centenary, our semi-century, our demi-centigrade. Hello, I'm Paul Carenza, with you for another one of these, telling the British broadcasting origin story the tediously slow way. No, not tedious. The informative, educational and entertaining way, as Reith would hopefully have it. We're having a mini-break of this sort of episode after this one, where we zoom in on the timeline of 1923, but only because it's summer, and that means summer specials. So in fact, after this episode, we've got at least three specials for you. Long-form interviews I've done with some wonderful broadcasting history experts. Many of them have written books. Sarah Jane Stratford, author of Radio Girls. Edward Sturton, author of Auntie's War. And Stephen Bourne, author of Black Poppies, Britain's Black Community and The Great War. That's three fantastic guests on three fantastic episodes following this one. But first, lots to cram in this time. As January becomes February 1923, that man Reith was on a hiring spree. And above all, the most important position left to be filled was Chief Engineer. In this episode, a familiar name will get to that job, Peter Eckersley. Really, though, throughout this podcast series, we've largely been telling his story, I think. So now this is quite a major landmark moment Eckersley has been mocking the BBC from outside it, and now he joins it. Another familiar name on this episode is our special guest. If you've dabbled in broadcasting history, you can't have avoided David Hendy. His doorstop of a book has been dominating Windows of Waterstones. The BBC, A People's History, out this year, documents a century of beebness. It's by David Hendy, Professor Emeritus of Media and Cultural History at the University of Sussex. Now, David spoke to me for a full hour, so we're going to chop that audio into bits. It's called editing, and the first of those chats is in this episode, on the pioneers throughout the first few decades of the BBC. For the full hour-long video, you can join our Patreon page, 
patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. And you can see that there. But I started by asking David what led him to this book and how long, in fact, has he been researching and writing about broadcasting's backstory? Many, many years ago, I was at the BBC. I was a journalist and a, and a producer at the BBC uh, in the late 80s and the early 90s. And then when I left the BBC uh, to, to join academia, um, I was sort of studying the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that's partly as a practitioner. Uh, so, you know, I'd, I'd made radio, I, I'd cut tape, I'd, I'd done all that kind of stuff. I'd re- reported uh, news stories and been in a radio car and all that kind of stuff. But I'd also, before I was at the BBC, been a historian, trained as a historian, medieval history, actually, not modern oh, okay. history. They do say sometimes that you need to be a medievalist to understand the BBC. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, since then, I guess it's the best part of 30 years I've spent mm. thinking about the BBC as an institution and the BBC as a kind of cultural phenomenon as well, because I think that's that's really important. You know, we think of it very often as a kind of grand institution, perhaps a little bit faceless, perhaps a little bit monolithic. And I think it's easy to forget the kind of the complexity of this institution. And especially if we think about those early years in Savoy Hill, the sense of it being fluid, being a kind of a, a place of kind of of ad hoc inventiveness, mm. a sort of pioneering spirit and, and so on. So I've been really keen, partly as a historian and partly as a programme maker, to try and reflect mm. in my sort of research and writing the people who made the BBC uh, and, and, and redeem them really as human beings, not, not faceless apparatchiks, but, mm. but human beings, flesh and blood, with passions, with ideals, but also fallibilities. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. with a lot of baggage that they bring to their to their job and their sense of what they're doing. Those early years, I think, are, are particularly captivating mm. because it feels as if it's it's populated by people who, with real earnestness and sincerity are trying to work out what this new thing broadcasting is and it, and it's really fascinating to find that being being worked out for the first time really more from david hendy coming up this episode and your emails as well we'll get to some of those after we've looked at our 1923 story well i joined the bbc and i'll tell you something of how it happened peter pedleton eckersley Poacher turned gamekeeper joins the company that he's been belittling on air on 2MT Rittle for months. Now, if you're not familiar, 2MT Rittle was an experimental Marconi station. We've explored it across many episodes. And now in our timeline, Peter Eckersley has just closed down 2MT. Now this big BBC thing has come along. But he has become smitten with the idea of joining the BBC. And once he heard the opera broadcasts in the second week of January, hearing the conductor's baton and the audience rustling their programmes and chatting away. That sense of atmosphere of immersing yourself in a different location made him realise the power of broadcasting. Because you suddenly were in the atmosphere of Covent Garden. You suddenly were 
conscious that this was music, that this had potentialities. So as we heard in the 2MT Riddle episodes, Peter Eckersley has proven himself to be rather anti-establishment. Here's one story that we've not told from that era. One of Eckersley's underlings was Riddle engineer Rolls Wynn, and he reflects on one occasion that Peter Eckersley really hacked off the railway companies by doing a joke at their expense on air in 1922 from the Riddle Hut in Essex. About ten minutes after we'd started, P.P. arrived, he seized the microphone from one of us. I think we were reciting If or something at the time. And he said, hello CQ, hello CQ, Eckersley here. Um, I'm sorry I'm a little late, but I was called to be interviewed by head office. And um, on the way back, uh, uh, the train was late. It was uh, a quarter of an hour late getting into Chelmsford. Uh, it was said that there was a fog on the line. Well, of course, there wasn't a fog on the line, he said. Uh, Porter only has to breathe on the line at Stratford, and the London North East runs late for the next fortnight. <laughs> well, uh, so we all duly said, ha ha. And uh, about two days later, there was a most frightful rocket from Arthur Burroughs. Well we, well, we dismissed that as well. Well, the man hasn't got any sense of humour. Ah, Eckersley versus Burroughs, always at each other's throats. See my tour, the first broadcast, and you can see the Eckersley Burroughs feud brought to life. PaulCorenza.com slash tour for details of where and when. But Eckersley was indeed destined to join Arthur Burroughs at the BBC. Arthur Burroughs, first voice of the BBC, first director of programmes, was there from the start, one of the first four employees. Eckersley joined not long after, in the first 15 or so employees. And although he'd been mocking the BBC on air, he had secretly been wanting to be at least offered a job with them. I was longing to be asked, but I heard, we heard, that um, somebody else had been appointed. And we, sitting in Rittal, said, typical, typical of head office, typical, neglecting genius. However, luckily, luckily, the man who was offered the job turned it down. Now, now, that person would be R.H. White, the engineer at 2LO London, in its earlier experimental days before 2LO became part of the BBC. R.H. White chose to stay with the Marconi company, thinking this BBC outfit was going to be going nowhere fast. The Beeb was no safe bet. And so the chief engineer job stayed open. But as we said a couple of episodes ago, when John Reith met Peter Eckersley about the close down of 2MT Riddle, Reith wondered if Eckersley would do as chief engineer. Though Eckersley tells the story of his first dabblings with the BBC rather differently. One day, and this is rather Conrad, rather chance, I was um, in the Strand and I was walking to catch a bus to go to Liverpool Street and I realised I hadn't got any tobacco and I turned round and I ran into Basil Binion of the Radio Communication Company, who was, incidentally, one of the people that formed the BBC, the Big Five. And he said, but you're just the man. I said, I know I am, but what for? And um, he said, oh, you, uh, wouldn't you like to be chief engineer of the BBC? I said, blimey, of course. Why didn't you ask me before? So um, he said, well, I'll see about it. Ah, yes, no one tells it like Eckersley does. Apart from a younger version of Eckersley. I was walking towards the bus, going to Liverpool Street, and I suddenly said, Law, I'm going to tobacco. I turned back, I ran into a man, Basil Binion, who said, look, Law, you're just the man. I said, I know I am, but what for? He said, would you like to be the chief engineer of the BBC? I said, well, I don't know why you people haven't asked me years ago. Well, about two days later, I met a Mr. Reith. And Mr. Reith was concealed in a cupboard in a big office in Magnet House, Kingsway. And the rest of the office was full of the rest of the staff. 
ECE and ACE, I suppose. And, um, oh no, there were no engineers, of course not. And um, I had an interview with Mr. Reed. And I remember him looking up under those eyebrows and saying, you're an enthusiast, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. He said, well, I think we, we could do with one. And that was my appointment. So John Reith essentially offered Eckersley the job and Eckersley said he was interested. But then he had to go back to Rittle in Essex and persuade his wife, Stella, to leave the chickens and the farmhouse. He had to go back to his team at the Rittle hut and face those engineers who joined in his jibes until now, including Noel Ashbridge. I remember extremely well his coming into the hut about six o'clock, having been up to London, and he said, well, I've been offered the job of chief engineer of the BBC. And I said, well, well, you're not going to take it, of course. He said, well, I don't know, you know. I, this thing, of course, it's an awful sort of kid's game at the moment. But it might become something you never know. Oh, I said, but it's a hopeless thing. I mean, look what we're doing here. This was in the hut, you see. <laughs> One army hut. I said, look what we're doing here. We're covering aircraft. We're doing army stuff. We're doing... Uh, ordinary communication stuff of one and a half kilowatts and so forth and all you'll do will simply be sending out stock exchange prices weather reports and a gramophone record and so on well I was that much wrong well he didn't think I was that much wrong at first but he did see the light much sooner than I did and uh, having thought about this thing over the weekend he said I'm going to take that job all right it is madness you you never do any good in a thing like that you're going right out of the mainstream of wireless well time passed of course and um, well I saw the light myself and that is what happened over the appointments of both PPE and, my, and myself ah, so Noel Ashbridge became chief engineer of the BBC after Peter Eckersley did just took him a little longer to become convinced. After being offered the BBC job, though, Eckersley wasn't completely sure about leaving the Marconi company. He went back to Marconi's, asked for his old job to match his pay. So was he moving to the BBC definitely or just seeking the best wage? Hmm. I asked Marconi historian and Eckersley expert Tim Wonder. Into that world, and this is the world of Mavericks, and he really, I suspect was something of a square peg in a round hole. They didn't fit. Marconi, the man, was now entering the, the latter phase of his life, was very strict, disciplinarian, aloof. The Marconi company was very focused on what it wanted to do. And I think Eckersley really realised that his time was done. If, if nothing else, I will suspect that if Marconi's had matched it, he'd have simply gone back to Reith and said, make me a better offer, because that's yeah. the measure of the man. That's true, maybe so. Well, the job wasn't definitely Eckersley's yet, because John Reith had to put his name forward to the board of the BBC. He did that a week or so after offering the job to Eckersley. February the 5th, Eckersley himself was sitting on a windowsill of an office in Marconi House, swinging my legs, waiting anxiously for a call from Mr. Reith to tell me whether or not my application had been successful. I was very excited. I wanted that job. The bell rang. Yes. When could I start? Monday? Mr. Isaacs, this is the Marconi Company Managing Director, when I saw him to say goodbye, said grimly that it was all very irregular, that my agreement called for a month's notice on either side. 
But go and see the cashier at once and get a month's pay, he added. Get to Magnet House as quickly as you can. There's a great deal to do. How right he was and how kind. Ah, yes. Godfrey Isaacs, Eckersley's boss, effectively, did have a stake in the BBC, as did the whole of the Marconi Company. Isaacs was one of the directors. The Marconi Company had £10,000 of money invested in the BBC. He wanted to see it succeed. He knew it needed a chief engineer, and it needed Peter Eckersley. So... I joined the BBC. Elsewhere that day, Reith had a busy one. He had more work to be done. Him and Sir William Noble went to visit Postmaster General Neville Chamberlain, talking about licences. The Postmaster General didn't even see the point of trying to enforce this licence fee, not realising that was pretty much the only thing funding the BBC. Reith commented that years later, when Chamberlain was the Chancellor of the Exchequer and there were 8 million licence fee payers, he thought rather differently and was rather keen to get that money for the government. Reith, though, was still spending money left, right and centre, setting the BBC up. His hiring spree continued. The next day, February the 6th, Mr R.M. Page was taken on to assist Major Anderson as secretary. So there are now two company secretaries, essentially, up in Manchester. 2ZY early radio legend Victor Smythe was hired on February the 1st, making a splash on his first day, arriving in a wide-brimmed hat and a fur-collared coat, suggestive of Henry Irving, so it said. He asked for more money, which they didn't have. They insisted that the publicity value of being on the radio was surely worth far more than any salary. Yeah, 100 years on, still the case. Back in London, another gap in the staffing was publicity. Reith was well aware of this fact. They needed someone to deal with the press. As we will hear in future episodes, this was becoming ever more important to keep them on side. So there was one Walter C. Smith from Glasgow. This was Reith's man for this. Walter Smith was a journalist and a former missionary, in fact, right up Reith Street, and he was a friend of the family, recommended by John Reith's brother Douglas. Walter Smith visited for the day from Glasgow with a single ticket. He was to stay and not return. He was well aware this job interview was essentially Reith saying, come, stay, we need you now. Reith sent him straight to the publicity managers of the wireless firms, the board of directors. Smith was not well prepared for this role. Reith straightened his collar and tie before sending him off. A rum cove, Reith called him. Walter Smith lasted a couple of years, not a BBC lifer as such, but he did join Peter Eckersley in being rather playful and not taking the job too seriously. As soon as Smith arrived, there were instant problems for him. You see, the newspapers had decided that there'd be no more printing of schedules for the BBC from February the 15th. Reith refused to pay them. They saw it as basically advertising. But because of this, in mid-February, John Reith told Arthur Burroughs to produce a scheme for publishing daily sheets with programmes on, essentially the Radio Times. If the boycotts continued, that could then become a weekly magazine in that form. Of course, that would come in in September of 1923. The press relented. They realised that actually broadcasting was a good thing for their papers and circulation improved. But that Radio Times idea did come in then. Here's another Reith innovation of early February 1923. Reith had an idea to broadcast news to AA telephone boxes on the road. And they tried it on February the 9th in Isha with Colonel Garrett, the AA chairman. PM Peace, one of the board's directors. Arthur Burroughs was there, a freshly joined Peter Eckersley. And a Western electric kit that unfortunately failed. At dinner, though, that night in Isha, Peter Eckersley held court, wowed the crowd, and Reith was convinced that he'd hired the right man. So at this stage, Reith was across everything. The employments, 
the innovations. For some years, he was personally involved in interviewing every prospective employee. At this early stage of February 1923, with Eckersley joining, the BBC was clearly of a manageable staff size, but it would not be long before even General Manager John Reith's general management would find it tricky to generally manage this ballooning BBC. And on this, I asked author of the BBC A People's History, Professor David Hendy, when that tipping point of the BBC becoming rather big came in. Olive Shapley talks about the fact that she was summoned to interview with Reith even after she got the job. He wanted to meet every single employee sort of thing. But there must be a tipping point when the BBC got so big that no one could possibly know what everyone else is doing anymore. But those early years had that magical quality, didn't they? When they, they did, they, they did. And of course, if you if you read the memoirs of BBC staff or, or listen to their oral history interviews, for instance, um, yeah. it, everyone identifies their own tipping point. And, and I noticed that even Cecil Lewis, for instance, who had sort of left the BBC by the end of the 1920s, talked pretty early on, actually, in the mid 1920s he's saying that oh the bbc is is not what it was yeah <laughs> uh, it, it's already a bit routine and a bit boring and the suits have taken over and, and and so on so for him the tipping point was within a couple of years really of the bbc being created for other people um it was the move to broadcasting house in 1932 you know when you leave this savoy hill course we know Savoy Hill wasn't the very first BBC building it was kind of um, uh, squatting in in, in other buildings before it moved into Savoy Hill but Savoy Hill had been an extraordinary home a complete rabbit warren where people were thrown together in interesting ways and then in 1932 I mean the BBC has already grown several thousand employees of course it's the case that you know people won't know everyone in the organization Reith is, all, uh, is, is sort of a familiar figure, but he's busy dealing with politicians and, and less in day-to-day control of, of output. There's a mechanism, there are committees, there's the control board and all that kind of thing that means to some extent it's, it's become professionalised. And this is one of the stories of, you know, the BBC as it kind of moves towards the end of the 1920s and the 1930s. So for a lot of people, that was a tipping point. And Broadcasting House is this grand purpose-built building it has separate lifts for different kind of grades of staff uh, it's 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 got a coat of arms it's got commissioners who kind of you know stand to attention when Reith and Charles Carpendale arrive for the day and uh, the brass is polished regularly and and people say you know there it's it's that that sense of camaraderie uh, dissipates and then of course it, in many ways it comes back i think in the second world war when the bbc is sort of under siege in a in a very real sense you know it's it it, it feels as if it's on a hit list of the luftwaffe for a start mm. staff move out of london and they they uh, make do in places like Wood Norton and Bristol and Western Supermare and Bangor and Bedford and, and so on. And it becomes another era of improvisation and, and, and making do, ad hoc inventiveness and small communities. Um, you know, so the, the BBC becomes kind of dispersed into a number of small communities and that, that it's, it's, actually a wonderful thing to 
to read and to hear those accounts from wartime because you get a similar sense again of it being a pioneering era suddenly again mm. and and to jump away from 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 radio and talk about television you know speak to those people who were at alexandra palace in 1935 36 when they're getting ready to launch the first continuous television service they saw themselves as 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 pioneers a little community they knew each other they they had real respect for each other and part of that of course is that you know that, that as what the, the sociologists or the anthropologists would call othering you always have to have a bit of an enemy and sometimes the enemy is another part of the bbc <laughs> you know people in alexandra palace thought of the of of the suits uh, at the uh, you know in broadcasting house as the enemy to some extent they didn't really understand television they weren't sympathetic they weren't giving enough money and so on so so part of part of the, the story of the BBC is that, um, you know, as it becomes bigger, yes, it's true, you know, Reef can't interview everyone and mm. no one can know anyone, but then sort of micro communities form and you get departmental royalties and, and, and you know, differences between those doing drama and those doing news and those doing features. You get you get regional pride in the regional production centres and so on. So it's almost as if that desire to, to form a community can't go away. It keeps coming back. More from David coming up for the full unedited video. Patrons and matrons on patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. Get access to that for just £5 a month and you can cancel any time if you would like to. Link to that's in the show notes. Do join, support, chip in, help keep me in books. I bought David's book with my own pound, you know. Well, your own pounds if you've kindly given on Patreon. So you support us there. I give you videos and things. I afford more books. I interview their authors and repeat. So if you want me to interview more authors, that's a great way of making that happen. But fear not, if you're not shipping in, the full audio will be here in time, just in pieces across many episodes. More from Professor David Hendy coming up and more on Peter Eckersley's first day at a quieter, smaller BBC of February 1923. But first, some emails. Let's go backwards to last episode, to the even quieter non-BBC. I hope you enjoyed our foray into the commercial radio of Scotland in January 1923. Tony Curry was illuminating on both 2BP, the Daimler in-car radio demonstration station, and its predecessor in Glasgow, 5MG, set up by two local shopkeepers. Some broadcasting history experts were commenting on our Facebook group that 5MG is rather hard to find out about. Rather difficult to Google 5MG because you just get five milligrams of various drugs. Well, Andrew Barker emailed, though, about last episode, and he said in the most recent podcast, we stated that the in-car radio set up by Daimler only worked if the car was stationary. But it does appear, apparently, that Lord Provost, who we mentioned last time, got the experience of hearing the radio in action while travelling from Bearsden to the city, as in this newspaper extract of the time. The Lord Provost will proceed from Glasgow to Bearsden seated in a Daimler, and will have the unique experience of listening in all the way. So Andrew supposes that visitors to the motor show were maybe only allowed to listen to this radio demonstration while the car is stationary, because that way many people could experience it. 
So there you go. Apparently, the in-car radios did not have to be stationary. You could listen, in theory, to the radio on the move back in 1923. And you also note that we said that 2BP as a station moved then to Dublin for 10 days. Well, actually, it was only two days. It was Ireland's first radio station. Bit of a pop-up promotional idea, but yeah, it did not last the full 10 days. Two days later, the government closed it down. The artists and engineers, all booked and set up, were sadly cancelled. That's cancelled culture for you back in the early 20s. Thank you, Andrew. There's a fabulous documentary about this. Andrew Barker's pointed me towards it. I'll put the link in the show notes if you'd like to know more about the Dublin story of 2BP, first radio station in Ireland. We do need a um, an expert on the history of Irish broadcasting at some point on the show. I would love also to get an expert in American radio's origin story. In fact, any country's broadcasting origin story. Do you, dear listener, know a thing or two about it? Be our guest. Here's another extra bit from last episode. We also talked about the first broadcast sermon, 30th of July, 1922, a Dr. J. Boone. Well, I've done a bit more digging on this. Dr. Boone was a medical doctor and a preacher, and he gave this pre-BBC sermon, first ever religious broadcast in Britain, not with London 2LO. He'd applied for a licence, had it turned down, and in this first religious broadcast, he played in hymns and his sermon as a church service without him being there. He was at the Burndett factory in Blackheath. His church was in Peckham, fitted with a three-valve receiver and aerial on the roof using two clothes props. And inside, hauntingly, it was full of people, but no minister present. I'm sure there are ecclesiastical laws against that sort of thing. But back then, really rather exciting. Dr. Boone had enjoyed the Hague broadcasts, wanted to go himself. And so he sought the help of Burndett, this small wireless firm, like a Marconi company, but much, much smaller. In his first ever broadcast sermon, Dr. Boone addressed listeners in the north, south, east and west of England. Now, it's unlikely that many all that far and wide could hear him, but he did have letters from each point of the compass saying that they'd heard him, even though it's primarily for his congregation waiting for him there in church. Now, a lot of this information I found in a British Vintage Wireless Society article from 1993 by Dave Adams and a John Beasley. So if anyone knows more about them, or indeed about Dr. Boone and that first religious broadcast, do let me know. I am all ears. Paul at paulcarenza.com. Another couple of emails while we're here from a while ago now. Apologies. Uh, Robert Oxlade was in touch. In fact, I was involved with Robert doing a show of the first broadcast. He was one of the technicians there. And he talked about his wife's grandmother, uh, Elsie Golightly, an early singer in the early 20s of British broadcasting. And Elsie Golightly, lovely name, apparently would sing while sitting on an office chair with wheels on because, of course, they didn't have a fader. So a couple of engineers would be grabbing the back of this wheelie chair just to wheel her closer in and pull her further away on those big high notes. And one final email, Alan Pemberton, who emailed a long time ago. Hello, Alan. Thank you for your email. I've been storing it away for this episode about Peter Eckersley. Alan said that he's just read a PDF of Peter Eckersley's 1941 book, The Power Behind the Microphone. Yes, it's available online, so I will link that in the show notes as well. If you would like to read Eckersley's biography, Alan says, what a strange man he was. He starts off in his book in the 2MT Riddle calling style, does eventually calm down, but even in serious passages, Eckersley can't help resisting slipping the odd little joke in sideways when you aren't looking. Anyway, it's a fascinating read, and Alan talks further about some areas we'll come back to. Uh, Eckersley's prediction of the rise of multi-channel cable, radio, and television. Bizarre. 
Alan notes there was another Peter Eckersley um, who lived until 1981, also had a significant effect on broadcasting. During his time at the fledgling Granada TV, Alan says that he remembers him well. He worked on the Scene at 6.30 show that launched in 1963. Apparently in one edition of that, presenter Brian Truman solemnly announced that Camera 3 has finally died and the Derek Hilton trio immediately struck up with Chopin's funeral march. Alan says you don't get stuff of that quality on current affairs TV these days. Anyway, link in the show notes to Peter Eckersley's Power Behind the Microphone. Happy reading. And uh, in um, February 1923, I was chief engineer of the BBC, obviously the chief, because the only engineer. A little more about Eckersley's first day as chief engineer then. Oh, and we will speed up from here. Do not fret. We are not doing this with every single BBC employee. It's just we know quite a bit about Eckersley's beginnings at the B, possibly more than anybody else, because he didn't half like to talk. Well, he started as chief engineer, only engineer, Tuesday 6th of February. Just shy of a year since he started on that station in Essex, and what a year it's been. From a curmudgeon who was anti-radio as it interfered with his air traffic control work, to being in charge of Britain's first regular broadcast station, to seizing the mic, to becoming arguably Britain's first radio star, to sparking demand in radio sets, helping create the conditions needed for a BBC, to mocking that BBC, and then being inspired by it, quitting the microphone and now arriving to build the BBC empire from the ground up. Wow. Show me a greater 12 months of anyone involved in British broadcasting. As for his first day at the BBC, Eckersley later wrote just how busy and manic February the 6th actually was. He arrived, first of all, to piles of unopened mail and a very busy single-room office. This was still the era of the one-room BBC in Magnet House off Kingsway in London. He only recognised one person, Arthur Burroughs, sat there in the middle of the throng in his shirt sleeves and braces, sorting out fan mail for Children's Hour. Cecil Lewis, Uncle Caractacus, was at Arthur Burroughs' side as ever. But very quickly, Eckersley was summoned across the room into Reith's office, in inverted commas. It was a cupboard. And alone there in this cupboard, Reith launched into a monologue of orders at Peter Eckersley. And um, Reith said to me, first of all, we've got to move the transmitter from Marconi House because it's interfering with the air ministry. And um, secondly... I must recruit a new technical staff. I'd better be satisfied that the new stations erected at Glasgow, Cardiff, Bournemouth and Belfast were being properly installed. New office premises had to be found. I might have to do something to convince the amateurs now working on wavelengths around 400 metres that they must move off to make room for our new transmissions. Several of the technical publications were asking for articles on our future plans. Publicity was essential. He suggested I should see the new press man, Smith, coming down from Glasgow. Was it necessary for me to live in Essex? Hadn't I better get a house in London at once? And perhaps a better suit of clothes might help. And and there's a lot of bother at Marconi House because the noise of the band disturbs people working in the offices below. Was it true that the Western Electric microphones were better than the ones we were using at the Tuolo studio? Reith instructed Eckersley to see Mr. Peace, the managing director of the Western Electric Company. I gave him the address at the Old Witch. Then Reith invited Eckersley to dinner with Mrs. Reith and himself that night to talk things over more fully. I came out of the cupboard-like office, where Mr. Reith managed to get some degree of isolation, feeling slightly dazed. I wondered if I ought not to go back to Rittle at once. But school had taught me that new boys become old boys. I thought I would go over to Marconi House and talk to someone I knew. Over at the familiar Marconi House, Eckersley inspected the Tuolo studio that he hadn't really seen before. He asked what the odd instrument was in the middle of the room there. This organ... 
was the tuning signal with an electric motor blowing air into a pipe. Get the tuning right or it could sound like a dying goat. This was broadcast at the start of 2LO programmes to allow time for people to tune in. See Tim Wonder's book 2MT Rittle for more information on this. Eckersley saw Arthur Burroughs' legendary tubular bells. He resisted having a go. He had pastiched these bells before by bashing pots and pans in Rittle. But now he was here, off air, with no audience, but a full plate. So for Marconi House, Eckersley decided instantly to start work trying to find this new site for the London transmitter. And that meant finding a tower or high building to affix the transmitting aerial too. So uh, I remember going up onto a roof and looking around for some high projection where we could hang an aerial, seeing a thing, taking a compass bearing on it, going up to, uh, going up to one of the power stations at Marylebone there, ringing the doorbell, being confronted by the commissioner and saying that I wish to see their chief engineer, one to another, and um, <laughs> he said, who are you, sir? I said, I'm the chief engineer of the BBC. The what, he said? It was not known, those days. However, not only was it not known, but the chief engineer was extremely unsympathetic, didn't want his chimneys pulled down at all. Tim Wonder. And there was a lot of technical issues to solve around the new BBC, not least of which, which harks back to the, the Melbourne experiments, massive interference. At this time, radio um, is still the preserve of the military, the Admiralty, uh, the Army now have taken it on board, but obviously the RAF uh, formed on the 1st of April in 1918, they are using a lot. The air traffic control systems are flying a lot of aircraft with Croydon um, being their, their hub, which is just outside London. So interference was a huge issue. In the coming days, then, Eckersley moved with his wife and his family to Goldhurst Terrace in West Hampstead. Lovely garden. Dogs on this occasion. No chickens like the Essex farmhouse. His wife, Stella, was still rather unsure for some time yet. But his colleagues noticed in the ensuing weeks that he was quite a relaxed employee. Deputy Director of Programmes Cecil Lewis asked Eckersley how he was so stress-free when everyone else was running around like the chickens that Eckersley had left in the Essex farmhouse. Eckersley replied, Well, my plan is to build a few transmitters, then sit back in an armchair and watch everyone else work themselves to death. A wonderful theory, but Eckersley did not get much sit-down time in those few weeks or months or the years to come. To begin with, it was a very frustrating market. He found that private industry was overcharging, under-delivering, so Eckersley's plan was to convince Reith that actually doing things in-house was best. The BBC needed its own R&D department, and that would save money in the long run. Eckersley's other priorities for the engineering department? Well, there was the dilemma of how to deal with the radio amateurs. You see, the wireless trade were trying to promote valve sets the whole time. That was where they're going to make their money. Eckersley, though, wanted to defend... The radio amateurs, the hams, they're the ones who campaigned to the Postmaster General and really ended up in the BBC existing at all. He saw them as a core part of radio's development and actually a community to be sourced for part of that research and development. So Eckersley championed them rather than the constant push towards the fanciest of radio sets. Other than that, Eckersley's focus was on radio sounding like a person or persons speaking, singing or making music in their own room. And that was a tall order for 1923. So it's Eckersley that asked Captain Round to design a new high-fidelity microphone, the magnetophone. All of these developments very early on, and that was just for starters. In future episodes, we'll tell you about the regional scheme, the relay stations, Daventry, home of the world's first long-wave radio. It was early days, a lot of work to do, 
the fact that you know they managed to achieve this but i also think paul what an amazing time to have been alive totally just what a challenge yeah. i think you look at these people had already you know by the time they're 30 they had fought in a, a, a war they developed airborne wireless over the trenches they developed the um first civilian airlines traffic which is now taking passengers across europe they've then done turn to riddle and they've now formed the bbc and what are you going to do on thursday is kind of what i come to and his career will go on um so it is an amazing time an amazing opportunity to the roaring 20s the bbc was very fortunate to have him as its first chief engineer and relations between himself and me were always happy and friendly and apart from being a great asset to the BBC, he was a very agreeable companion on a hard and difficult road. Well, so says Lord Reith there, but flash forward less than a decade from Eckersley joining, and it was Reith versus Eckersley over a workplace affair, causing Eckersley's ultimate departure from the BBC with his tail between his legs. That's for another time, though. There's a whole Eckersley story yet to come, and I'm sure we'll bring it to you here. Maybe we won't wait till we reach the 1930s and 40s to bring it to you, though. We could be some time yet. But to finish, let's have a quick look at John Reith, then. Perhaps the most analysed and discussed and psychologically fascinating person in British broadcasting's history. Here to tell us more, Professor David Hendy. One of the, the revelations for me when I was researching uh, the BBC book was to dig out the war pension records of John Reith that are held at the National Archives. Now, to claim a, a war pension, you obviously have to be examined medically. Uh, and so the medical records that are there um, are really kind of quite touching because Reith really is suffering in the early 20s still from his wound in the First World War where he'd been shot in the face. He'd, he'd survived that, but it was left with a that famous scar down his left cheek. Uh, and in the photos that we see of Reith, we don't really notice that scar very much because he tends to position himself so it's slightly shadowed and, and, and so on. But in the in the National Archive, there's a sort of medical photograph which shows, you know, really quite how, how sort of fierce that, that wound was. And also there, there were still the invisible wounds, so it had affected his hearing. He was at the point where he's, he's establishing himself at the BBC at the tail end of 1922, he's still being treated for neurasthenia. He's still getting panic attacks. He's got phobias. He's got tremors of the tongue and of the eyes and the hands. There's a sort of degree of damage to him and sort of a, a sort of ongoing you know pain and illness that he's having to put up with it made me i mean not just slightly more sympathetic to him but also feel as if you could understand a little bit his sort of irritability mm. um, that he had uh with his staff and then of course there are all these accounts of sort of strange acts of kindness that he had as well so yes he was intimidating and he would he would use his height to intimidate people. And, and you know, as you know, Paul, there are those famous stories of how he interviewed staff for posts by kind of, you know, 
standing in front of his fireplace brandishing his poker <laughs> and, and asking uh, you know t- testing people's you know biblical soundness and theological soundness and and, and so on um but he also you know in the evenings at Savoy Hill, he'd pop into the telephone exchange and he'd exchange pleasantries with, you know, Olive May, who was there as the telephonist, and share a cup of cocoa. Um, if some members of staff were ill, um, he would take time to write to them or contact the family. Um, and occasionally, you know, if people disagreed with him, he you know, he didn't sort of sack them on the spot, as it were. Um, I mean, he had very strong views. And, you know, when it came to art and music and contemporary literature and so on, he was he was undoubtedly a traditionalist. But he, he would be willing to have people who disagreed with him. And, they, and those people as well would, would stand up to him and, and, and argue. And although, of course, there's that famous example of Hilda Matheson, the mm. director of talks, who, you know, eventually has enough of Reith. You know, she wants a much more open view of talks, a wider range of opinion on air, and eventually she kind of leaves. She's had enough. But in the meantime, you know, she's been there for a couple of years having arguments with Reith, having discussions with Reith. Ah, yes, Hilda Matheson then. So next time we leap ahead beyond our timeline to the late 1920s, when the company becomes a corporation. We're going to pause the timeline we're in here in February 1923. The next three episodes then are specials. Hilda Matheson and the Radio Girls with Sarah Jane Stratford. Next time, Stephen Bourne on Evelyn Dove and the early black British broadcasters and Edward Sturton from Radio 4 on World War II and the BBC. So if you would like some holiday reading, they all have books. I recommend to you Radio Girls by Sarah Jane Stratford, Auntie's War by Edward Sturton, and Stephen Bourne's many books on black British history. And Tim Wander's many books on early radio. I've got a book or two as well, so a comedian walks into a church, that's one of mine. little memoir for you there, Hark, the Biography of Christmas, if you like your cultural history. And I'm still working on it, the novel about the BBC, Auntie and Uncles, should be out by, well... Christmas or next summer. Oh yes, and indeed, of course, David Hendy's behemoth of a book, The BBC, A People's History, is out now. Do share, subscribe, rate and review us. It all really helps. We are a one-man operation here. Not made by the BBC, I hasten to stress. No siree. Do support us where you can. Share what we do online. That would really help. Tell a person face-to-face about this podcast. Why not indeed? Or call up an old buddy who you think might enjoy us. But meanwhile... The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. The archive clips are either public domain due to age or some rights may belong to owners we know not whom. Any BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. All right, not off, pop pickers. Stay informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time for the first of three summer specials. The Radio Girls of the late 1920s and the British Broadcasting Century.